Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is November the 1st, 2023. I hope November will be a better month than October, although I somehow suspect it won't. Um, earlier uh, in October, we did a show with the British historian Roger Morehouse uh, on a forgotten story of a Polish diplomatic rescue operation to save the lives of uh, Polish Jews. The book was called The Forgers, um, uh, the forgotten story of the Holocaust, at least according to the subtitle of the book, most audacious rescue operation which was carried out by something called the, the Ladosh Group, some Polish uh, diplomats in, in Switzerland who tried to save the lives of uh, Polish Jews through uh, Paraguayan passports, of all things, issuing Paris passports, uh, Paraguayan passports, uh, not Paris passports, uh, of all places. It's, it's quite an unbelievable story. And like some unbelievable stories, it's true. And afterwards, I said to Roger, um, this is all very well, but how many people did you actually save? And he said, well, a lot. Not you, but the Ladosh group. Uh, and he said, you need to talk to my friend Daniel Finkelstein, who has a new book out, Two Roads Home. That was the title of the book. Well, that is the title of the book in, uh, in the US. In the UK, it's called uh, Hitler. Stalin, Mum and Dad, and the book came out a month or two ago. And you need to talk to uh, uh, Daniel because his family uh, had, so to speak, the miracle of the uh, the Ladosh passport or the Paraguayan passport. So uh, Roger introduced me to Daniel Finkelstein, and here he is. Uh, Daniel, how familiar were you with the Ladosh group when you when you did the research on 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 your book? Um, you have a, a, a section in the book on it, but how familiar was this story in your in your family folklore? Well, we knew about the Paraguayan passport, but I didn't know the origin of it. And I really stumbled across it, actually, um, of all things on social media. Uh, I uh, On the anniversary of my mother's departure from Belson, uh, which is at the end of January each year, I knew she was part of a, of a swap that she took part in, a very rare swap. I, I usually post every day during that period a little encapsulated version of her story. And one of the days featured the fact that it was a Paraguayan passport that had brought about this uh, departure, that that, him, that Himmler had um, established a kind of hostage scheme, kept these hostages in Belsen, and then there was a small swap. Not very many people, but there was a small swap of people who had these passports. And when I put this on social media, I got a, a text back from somebody saying... Um, does this passport come from Switzerland? And that was pretty much the only thing I did know about it. It had been obtained for my uh, mother by a person called Camilla Arno. I knew she lived in Bern because when I was five or six years old, I'd actually gone to Switzerland with my mum and met uh, Camilla Arno, the woman who had, uh, in that act, saved my mother's life. So when I found out that Camilla Arno um, had lived in Bern and this person knew that the passports came from Bern, I needed to know more. And that's when the story of the Wallach group uh, came out, when I was told 
uh, how these had been procured. Actually, I've got one of these passports here, if it would interest. Uh, yeah, the, um, for people just listening, Daniel's waving it at the uh, at the screen. It looks it looks it looks legitimate, Daniel, but of course it isn't. Yeah, here it is. Well, no, the, the, this is the interesting thing about these passports. They are, in fact, um, legitimate in every way, but they feature a major lie in the middle of them. Uh, so they are uh, they they are totally uh, legitimate passports. They've been uh, stamped by the relevant authority. Um, they have they feature all the information that you need to include in such a passport to make it valid. But everybody who issued it and everybody who had it and everybody who respected it knew that it was a lie. That makes it quite extraordinary. Wadosh uh, had appreciated um, and uh, that um, that Jews were being murdered in in large number in in Poland. Uh, he'd he'd experimented with a group of Soviets, and my story actually involves. Um, my father's family as well, and my father's uh, were vic the victims of the Soviets. Indeed, uh, as it turned out, um, though this part of the story with the passports is just about my mother's side of the family, that uh, my uh, Wadosh was actually in school with my paternal grandfather. Um, he came from Lvov, which is where my dad came from, which is an extraordinary uh, coincidence. But uh, Wadosh had um, realised what was happening, and he set up this scheme, which involved paying... Uh, as, as Roger, I'm sure, explained, the uh, the consul, uh, Rudolf Hoogley, who was uh, the, a Swiss notary, a fee, and he procured these passports, and they were recognised despite the fact that everybody realised they weren't... They, they, they featured this lie that my mother and her sisters and my grandmother were Paraguayan, because as readers of the, my book will discover by that point, not only were they not Paraguayan, but my, my grandfather had been one of the leaders of Germany's Jews uh, in the 1920s and, and early 1930s. And by the time they got these passports, they lived in Amsterdam and, um, uh, you know, along with with uh, Anne Frank and her family, who were yeah, friends of the uh, Alfred uh, Wiener, who... Uh who went uh, i mean it's an uh, it's an astonishing story uh daniel that uh, your grandfather went to london uh and then your your grandmother and uh her three daughters one of whom of course was your mother were, were stranded uh in amsterdam you talk about these extraordinary coincidences it's it's, it, it's a book with two stories your mom your dad uh, the story of and then, then the story of these german jews who went to amsterdam in right, I mean, you grew up with these stories, obviously, and they've had a, a profound impact on you and your family. Um, have you ever thought that it's more than just extraordinary coincidence? Have you ever imagined that that there's more to it than that? That there's some sort of uh, extraordinary narrative here because it's an astonishing story. It is. You see, look, the the the. Um... The problem with stories about the Holocaust is they're told by survivors, and um, my, you know, both my my uh, mother survives Belson. You know, when even say, for example, her first cousin goes to Sobibor to the gas chambers. My father survives an extraordinary winter in Siberia, where uh, Stalin has sent a family. Uh, you know, it's below freezing inside; they've got no food. Um, 
and they 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 are incredibly uh, fortunate to be reunited as a family. So it is extraordinary, and you can see each of these things um, as an amazing chance. Uh, but of course, if they if they if at one point in this chain it had failed, for example, uh, you know there are moments. I know this because my aunt kept a diary in in Belson. Um, there were moments when the family, uh, sorry, in Westerbork, and there were moments when the family were threatened with going to to Auschwitz. Westerbork being the the place where Jews were concentrated to be sent to the gas chambers uh, or to Belsen. And there were times when they nearly went to Auschwitz instead of ultimately going to Belsen. And if that had happened, obviously, this story would never have been written. And it did happen to many families. And so uh, rather than seeing it as fate, I think um, you should read my book thinking of all the people who didn't have these multiple strokes of good fortune, which were required to uh, mean that my family, uh, my family survived. But, um, you know, and what's extraordinary about my grandfather, you mentioned that, you know, he was in the 1920s, he was one of the earliest people to, to, to understand what the Nazis were doing. He creates an archive um, of everything the Nazis were doing. He ends up, for example, being the only person who's kept a photograph of Joseph Mengele. So when the doctor of death of Auschwitz is discovered in Argentina, only Alfred's library, Alfred's archive is the only way that they know it's really him. Uh, so he, he, he knows exactly who the Nazis are before anyone else. He begins to campaign against them from 1919 onwards. And um, yet, despite knowing all those things, his family still end up in concentration camps. So, you know, one of the, 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 the stories of my book, really, is that you can know an awful lot uh, and still a massive amount of luck is required for you to survive what happens. You, when your mother makes a remarkable escape, this exchange, as you say, using these Paraguayan passports that everyone knew that were fake and that was neither here nor there, really, ultimately, you dismiss the word miracle. Uh, you, 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 you bring it up, and I think someone used it, or, or you think of the word, but you, 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 you don't think of it as a, as a miracle. Why? Well, uh, you know, um, funny enough, I, 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 I've, I've sort of got a quite a confusion of emotions about the word miracle, and the book reveals that in some ways, of course, it was a miracle because of, you know, you've as you've already brought out all these amazing chances that require were required. Even the fact that, you know, my grandfather's suing of the publishers of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, this famous anti-Semitic document, and he's involved in one of the great court cases of the nineteen. 30s against this document and through that he meets the contacts that lead him then to get these passports so these these, these you can see that as a miracle but the reason i shy away from it is that uh, in between the obtaining of these passports and their use there were so many bureaucratic obstructions where groups of people in the State Department for example were actively trying to cancel these passports on the grounds that they were worried they'd be used by spies and on the grounds that they were worried that it would undermine the validity of the passport system representing a, a simply gigantic failure to comprehend as they are uh, they did ultimately acknowledge indeed you know later in the story discovering what had happened to my family helped the acknowledgement of this they realized they had failed uh, to understand that the, the authorities realized they'd failed to understand what they were dealing with um, and so in some ways it was scandalous um the way that uh, that, that 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 so few people ended up 
they're benefiting from this exchange and only this tiny number uh, of which my mother 136 were in my mother yeah just that uh, number 136 uh, people it's a must be your lucky number um yeah and so many characters in our show pop up in your book there's so many interesting stories morgenthau shows up and it, and it reminds it reminded me at least in terms of reading of the book of how very senior people whether it's morgenthau or the british government or fdr they had this incredible impact on the lives and deaths of of european jews it's astonishing isn't it so what it, absolutely. Look, I, I, I discovered um, there, there were two people who I didn't expect to emerge as major characters in my book because I didn't really know very much about them before, um, but they were. Um, they, they weren't people, either of them, that, that my parents knew personally. So there are there are plenty of extraordinary people from Isaiah Berlin to uh, to to Anne Frank that they did know personally, but uh, they didn't know Morgenthau. Uh, and yet, clearly, without Henry Morgenthau, this exchange would never have taken place. Uh, these Jews would not have been saved. These passports would not have ultimately helped to save their lives. So he emerges from this book as from much of his biography, I think, as a uh, as a hero. have you read this. Um, Huge new biography of the Morgenthau's. You should have a look at it. It's, it's an amazing book. Actually. Well, I don't know what I have read a book on uh, on it, but I don't know whether it's the same one that you're uh, referring to. Um, but but yes, um, you know, obviously he was one of the people I researched, and I think he, you know anybody who who is uh, interested in the Second World War should read about him. He's an extraordinary figure. And then the other figure that I had not anticipated uh, emerging in my book as an interest as a figure of interest um, is the man who uh, is the Secretary General of the Communist Party of Ukraine, uh, who is involved with the deportation of my father, mm. who moved into the house becomes the next door neighbor of my father, uh, moves into the house that can be seen from my father's bedroom, and that is Nikita Khrushchev. Yeah, amazing. Uh, yeah, it's astonishing. My... And, and he doesn't come out of the book looking particularly good. I mean, he sometimes gets a good press right. because of de-Stalinization and all the rest of it, but uh, he, 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 he yeah. doesn't come out smelling of roses either, and very few people do. No, no, he did he edits this, you know, this idea that he uh, identified Stalin's crimes. He identi he edits that list to exclude the crimes for which he was personally responsible, um, which were lots of them. And one of them was the deportation of my father. You know, pe people obviously understand the Nazi. The way I've described my book is there are two crimes here, one of which is an extraordinary version of a, of a crime we know about, the, the Holocaust uh, crime. But the stories, you know, ranging from what happens to the family home help Betty and her extraordinary exploits uh, through to um, this uh, this Paraguayan passport ring. Uh, these are amazing stories people may not know about, um, but uh, they, they are part of a bigger story that people are familiar with. My father's was, I suppose, a bog standard version of something people just don't know about, which was the attempt of the communists to wipe out the whole of the Polish elite. So if you think about it this way, the Nazis arrest everybody who is a Jew, some of whom happen to be shopkeepers, and the Soviets arrested everyone who was a shopkeeper, some of whom turned out to be Jews. Um, and But it was the same project, which was 
Uh, let's destroy the elites that are diverting the true path of our nation. And my mom and my dad are both 10 when they're arrested, different years, but they're because uh, my mom was uh, younger than my father, but they were both 10 at, at the moment of their arrest. And um, they are both considered part of this sinister elite by the communists and the Nazis, uh, despite the fact that they uh, are not yet in senior school. We are speaking with Daniel Finkelstein, a very distinguished journalist in his own right in the UK. He's a house, uh, he's a lord as well. Uh, sits in the House of Lords and the author of a wonderful new book uh, in the US. It's called Two Roads Home in the UK, Hitler, Stalin, Mom and Dad. Um, Daniel, talk about elites. One of the other uncanny things about your book is that both sides of your family, they're both survivors, which is very unusual, and they're both incredible elites. I mean, on your mother's side, they're more of an intellectual elite. You talk about your grandfather. On your father's side, they were very, very wealthy people. We meet them first. They'd built this beautiful new villa outside Lvov. Could, if we're looking for explanations, was there something about these two families? I mean, they're different, but they're both very distinguished that allowed them to somehow survive, or is it just pure luck? Yeah. No, so, you know, without one of the... Um, one of the arguments of Hannah Arendt in Eichmann in Jerusalem, not generally a book that I liked very much, um, but unquestionably true, is that there was a class element in survival. Um, and undoubtedly, the resources of the wieners, intellectual and political, um, helped my mother survive. You know, my the reason that uh, they uh, survive is because of the passports. They have passports because my grandfather has international contacts, and he, um, through one of these people who's helping him uh, to collect newspapers on the Nazis, which are part of his archive, that's how they stumble across these um, this source of Paraguayan passports. In in my grandfather on my father's side, I think it's there's um, that they were more victims because of their class than they were um, surviving because of their class. But it was pretty striking to me. I did understand a bit more about my background, um, and um, you know the the prosperity of mother of Dolu Finkelstein who was known as the iron he was in the iron and steel business and he was known as the iron king which gives you a bit of an idea of you know the kind of solidity of his wealth they had a chauffeur and a car and uh you know a gardener and uh, a chef um and they built this beautiful house they, they were a very wealthy family um I I hadn't uh, you know all of that wealth was was kind of wiped out but it it did leave behind uh something I, I tell you this this uh, I I think this is very interesting. My my brother, um, who's a professor of, of software engineering, is the president of City University London. And um, he, he recently received a knighthood. And I gave a little speech uh, on the, at the party we held. And I pointed out that uh, Dolu uh, was the victim and Lusha, his wife, of this attempt to eradicate the elite of Poland. Uh, they, they took away everything he had, his factory, his steel mill, his house, uh, ultimately his nationality. They send him miles away to the Gulag. They try to kill him. They send my grandmother and my father to Kazakhstan, to the borders of Siberia. Um, they barely survive. 
the hunger and uh, the transportation. Um, so they and they end up in this tiny little house in in Hendon Central um, in in North London. Uh, people who come to London will know Brent Cross Shopping Centre. They 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 live in a house that's that was ultimately knocked down to make way for Brent Cross Shopping Centre, and. Um, Yet within a single generation of this attempted eradication of everything that the Finkelsteins had or stood for, my brother was a knight, I'm a member of the House of Lords, my sister is the permanent secretary, that is that she's the uh, head of um, one of the largest government uh, departments in the civil service. In other words, the project totally failed. Um, and, and I think that's, that is actually just politically quite interesting and if you're a political analyst like me, uh, you, you look at points like that and think, oh that's an interesting thing to learn. Your mother was a remarkable woman, uh, and you 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 note in the book that she was more, I would say, more forward, more central, more colourful, perhaps in some ways than your father. Um, how, how would you distinguish your parents and their and their experience of this? Because they had such different experiences and yet simultaneously similar ones too. How did it impact their personalities? Yeah, well, it's interesting. So you know. Everyone will have their own translation as to whether or not their extraordinary even hand, even temperaments, and their ability even to process their uh, their um, experiences with humour. So, just to give you an example, where that comes from. So, just to give you an example, in my mother's case, I remember that when Ronald Reagan went, as some listeners will recall and others will have read about, he went to the Bitburg Cemetery on a visit to Germany. Mm. Um, there was a panic among his staff because they realised there were SS graves in this uh, cemetery. So it was decided that he would go to Belsen as well um, to sort of balance out the visit, uh, as politicians tend to do. And um, I heard this on the radio. I was living at home. I came downstairs. My mum was washing up, and I stood behind her. And I sort of rather enthusiastically said, oh, mum, uh, Ronald Reagan's going to uh, to Belsen. And without turning around, mum went, so what? I've been. Uh, which was, you know, uh, characteristic of mum. <laughs> I, I find I they, they had the ability and my father I remember also telling me that he'd been to East Germany and when he got there they said that he'd arrived on election day and he very politely asked whether they minded if he didn't stay up for the results so he, he um he he's they were they they had a sort of even temperament and whether that was just their natural temperament or a deliberate strategy for coping with it. So I, I think doing this book certainly made me feel that in Dad's case there was more deliberation than I'd give than I'd credited. So I'd always thought it was just who they were, you know, Mum and Dad. Um, but um, my my uh, my dad told me a lot about his story uh, in the Soviet uh, Union and uh, their their travels across the entire country from Uzbekistan, from you know from. Kazakh, from Kazakhstan through uh, to Uzbekistan and across to Iran. And um, I knew all about that. Um, but I realized when I was doing the book that the family that was left behind in Lviv, as it had become, Lvov, where my dad was born, when the Nazis come in there, they, they uh, kill all of the family that remains. So that my grandmother, my father's mother, Lusha, was one of seven siblings and is the only one to survive the war. And yet, despite 
what emerges to me from the correspondence they kept and which I then had translated and read for this book, um, some of them which were little letters that got sent with food parcels that kept them alive in Siberia. Uh, they were very close to Dorothea and to Wilhelm. I'm Daniel William Finkelstein, so I'm named after one of these people. Um, there is no trace of them at all in any family correspondence or family mentions or my father's testimony after that point. That that cannot have been an accident. That must have been a deliberate decision by him to decide to move on from that part of the story that was so difficult to cope with. So I think my book writing has adjusted my view. I started with a view that it was merely a manifestation of my parents' character and I came to the conclusion that it was also a deliberate decision not to be victims. Um, and even though they were victims, they were going to live their life. They weren't just going to survive. And that meant looking to the future and not just thinking about the past. And one of the things also that I, I noted about the book is in the acknowledgments at the end, you write about your eldest son, Sam, who you, you write has been by my side at every stage of this book. And obviously, it's nice to have an elder son who helps you with the writing of the book. But I, I assume it's more. There's more to it than that. For your kids, um, this education, both about your family and yourself, must have been instructive. But w w what, what, what do you think Sam got out of this, apart from well, having fun working with you? I mean, Sam's the eldest, so he was the more capable of. Um, processing this information from a younger age and he's always and he just happens to have historic you know my middle son's more of an en more engineering and my younger son's uh, still still quite young so my, my sam um took a lot of interest and has worked at the wiener holocaust library which is the archive my grandfather uh established which is still um it's one of the largest uh Holocaust archives in the world. It's still in Russell Square, London, which people can visit when they're here. Um, Sam had worked there for a week. He took a lot of interest in that. Um, and he's also just a very talented copy editor, so and very rigorous. How old so is Sam? He's now 23. But just to give you an example of the work that he did, because it'll interest you. Um, I had I was writing about my grandfather's uh, Dolu, my father's father, and his sentencing to eight years in the gulag um, by, uh, for being um, for, for being an antisocial element under the penal code. Um, Sam not only uh, real, uh, realized that my father had slightly got the number of the code that my grandfather had broken wrong, um, so he'd missed one digit, and uh, Sam corrected that, even though my father had it wrong originally, and this required him to get somebody Ukrainian to read the code and to translate it for him, which is quite rigorous. Um, and then the other thing is that I put in it that my grandfather was um, convicted of an invented crime. And he said to me, uh, all crimes are invented, Dad. Uh, we had a bit of a row about that because, you know, no father likes to be told a smart aleck thing by their son. And then I realized he was right, uh, that all crimes are invented. Um, so what I was really what I really meant by that was that people were found guilty of crimes that most of us wouldn't consider to be a criminal offense, which is a different 
thing, actually, because uh, all criminal codes are created. So he made me think creatively in lots of uh, parts of the book, and I really enjoyed doing it with him. That there's a, there's a story right at near the beginning of the book where I'm talking about the first warning that that Alfred Wiener, my my maternal grandfather, gives of the Nazis. He's, the, he's in 1919. He's the first one of the first people to write this tract, and he says, unless we uh, do something now, we will talk to our descendants of bestial murder. And doing reading that with Sam, you know, while I'm one of his descendants, uh, Sam is another. That was quite a moving thing and quite a powerful thing to realise because there we were about to embark on a book in which I was going to write precisely of the bestial murders that Alfred warned of that we failed to stop. The book's been very well received, Daniel, especially in the UK. You got a very nice review in the Financial Times, for example, by someone actually who was by John Kampfner. I'm sure you know him. He he was on the show yeah. yesterday talking about his new book on Berlin, which is called uh, In Search of Berlin. Kampfner, like you, is the son of survivors. Uh, and, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but my sense with him is he wants to go back. I don't get the same sense with you on your Twitter page. You don't have a picture of Berlin. You have a picture of Pinner Tube Station. You, you're very proud of, of where you are and what you've done in the UK. You wrote a book previously called uh, Everything in Moderation. Is there some truth to that? If you're to compare you and, and people like John Kampfner, do you want to go back? Yeah. Well, firstly, you know, in all the reviews I got, which were, which many of which were very generous, you know, it was lovely to have a review from somebody as distinguished as as John Kampfner, whose books are so themselves excellent because he clearly knows what quality is. So I felt very flattered that he'd made that judgment. I do feel differently about it. Yes. Um, so interestingly, I think I feel towards Britain a little bit of what Alfred felt towards Germany, and maybe there is. You know, maybe they'll turn out to be the same naivety um, because I think Alfred uh, was romantic about Germany, as it turned out. In fact, when he realizes that his faith in Germany isn't uh, isn't justified, it causes a nervous breakdown. He's had these political battles with Zionists and um, communists over the nature of Germany, and yet Hitler rises to power, and that kind of undermines his his arguments. So, um, you know, one of the most moving things to discover in the obituaries of my grandfather that appeared in newspapers after he died in 1964 was that uh, the German ambassador was at his funeral, that the president of the Federal Republic had sent a wreath that was on uh, Alfred's coffin, and that he asked for his ceremony. This was the most moving thing to be delivered in German and Hebrew, not in English. In other words, despite the fact that he was a naturalized British citizen, he still felt after everything that had happened, German. And you could say, does that make you feel yourself German? And I get that. Uh, but it doesn't really to me. I, I, I do think modern Germany is a miracle. So I share John's admiration of the way that Germany has moved, particularly in the last, you know, 30 years. Um, but I feel myself strongly part of an amazing of Britain, which I think is an amazing country, and I appreciate very strongly. And it, it it's interesting to me that my view that um, my kind of Judaism and my way of life can be tolerated in this country in a kind of unique way. It does correspond quite strongly to what Alfred felt, and that is like a tiny niggling worry. Uh, but it's how I feel anyway, and you can't help how you feel sometimes. 
I'm speaking with Daniel Finkelstein, the author of Two Roads Home. That's at least the American title of the book. Uh, British uh, viewers and listeners will know his new book has hit a Stalin, Mom and Dad. Um, this is the kind of story that will appear in Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. We've been generous enough to support the show. We're going to run short ad for liberties and then i want to come back with daniel and 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 talk about october 2023 and what we should and shouldn't learn from his book about the current situation in israel and gaza so don't go away anyone we'll be back in about 33 and a half seconds beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. All our guests are going to get annual subscriptions, including my guest today, Daniel Finkelstein, the author of Two Roads Home. Uh, Daniel, I'm sure you saw this piece in The Guardian. Um, by an Israeli historian, Raz Siegel. Israel, and, and this, of course, we're, we're, we're jumping from the, 19, the early 1940s and 30s up until 2023, October. Uh, Israel must stop weaponizing the Holocaust. It, it created a great deal of controversy and outrage. Some people think that The Guardian shouldn't have published it. I'm not sure if you've, um, if you've uh, read the piece, but he's essentially arguing that books like yours have been weaponized in order to justify what's happening now with this Israeli invasion of, of Gaza. What, what do you make of that? I, I mean, I, first of all, I don't criticize newspapers, generally speaking, for running articles. That's what they're there for, and people can read them and decide whether they uh, like them or not. And I think we ought to uh, be extremely sparing with our criticism of papers for agreeing to run a, a particular piece. But I'm allowed to feel uh, angered by it. I, I, I think the argument is preposterous. Uh, so what he's suggesting is that um, people should stop uh, learning the relationship between the Holocaust and um, Israel's current policy or its existence. I, to be fair, um, I found the whole... Uh, um, it's not a piece I've studied in detail. Um, and one of the reasons is that I find this whole argument, including the use of the word weaponizing, so aggravating. I thought it would be yeah. bad for my blood yeah, pressure. It's one of the dumbest um, words. I mean, anyone who uses it deserves to be weaponized, whatever that is. I think it's terrible. But I do, I do, um, you know, I'm quite explicit. Of course, my book is relevant to what happened. In fact, I that was, uh, you know, the article that I wrote almost immediately after it happened. Uh, my grandfather, Alfred Wiener, um, on, on, a, on an early visit to uh, Jerusalem, uh, to a Jerusalem train station kiosk run by Zionists, uh, sees on his name the words Alfred Wiener, le Germany's leading anti-Zionist, uh, because he is there to write a book called A Critical Journey Through Palestine, in which he makes the argument that uh, a state in Palestine is not a good idea. Um, it, it, it's completely germane to point out that this turned out to be wrong, uh, at least, at least, Alfred's arguments, I mean, the great tragedy for Jews, really, is that the arguments that he put, which were, um, he was basically saying, 
this project won't work economically. That wasn't correct. But he also said it's not big enough for all the Jews in the world. It can't settle all the problems for Jews in the world. And uh, I'm German anyway. I'd rather uh, live here. Um, and uh, I don't think this, you know, and you'll never get peace with the Arabs. That was his argument because he was an Arab scholar. Uh, and the Zionists in return said, you know, well, we may not get peace. Uh, we won't get peace here. You know, we're, we're all going to be killed if we stay here. The great tragedy for Jews is both of these arguments were correct. How can it be irrelevant to point that out? Um, my grandfather had to change his position after the war because it became obvious to him uh, that uh, the home, the, the Jewish homelessness created by the Holocaust and the fact that people uh, could never go home um, meant that we had to have a, a state in Israel that he had previously uh, rejected. And so for somebody to suggest that's not a part of the current argument uh, is, in my view, it's absurd. Um, and uh, nobody, it's not... Um, you know, it's not possible to understand either the need or the temperament of Israel uh, for the uh, need for Israel or the temperament of Israel uh, without, uh, you know, understanding the Holocaust. So, uh, insofar as my book can help people understand why this exists, uh, I, you know, I am the son of refugees who, as it happens, were able to find a, a home in this country for particular historical reasons. My grandfather, Alfred, had been uh, in this country with his library and was given citizenship after the war, really because of his war work for the intelligence services. And my father, my grandfather, Dolu, uh, was, became part of the Polish, uh, the Polish resettlement corps, which Churchill slightly guiltily having given away part of Poland, um, part of Poland to the Soviet Union and the, the rest to the communists, um, allowed the, the Poles who fought with Britain to come here. So they were able to come here, but lots of people didn't have that good fortune. Um, to suggest that that is irrelevant uh, is absurd. You work for, I think you, you work for the rival paper to the Guardian, the other a distinguished paper, the Times. Um, you wrote a piece uh, from uh, October the 17th. The only chance of peace is a proportionate war. What did you mean by that? Or what do you mean by that? Well, that article starts actually with a with um, my uh, sister, my, my mother and her sisters um, traveling through uh, to, uh, to where they ultimately end up in Switzerland, where the exchange that they're on is going to take place. And they go to Berlin to collect the Americans who are going to join this exchange. And out of the window on this uh, on this uh, clear moonlight moonlit night, they see that Berlin has been destroyed. And uh, what I ask is the question: Was that proportionate? Which is actually a question, in fact, that historians argue over. Uh, and the point of the 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 point I'm making is that you cannot judge the proportionality of doing that upon the basis of uh, how many people were killed in the Holocaust versus how many people were killed in Berlin. Uh, that is a grotesque calculation of proportionality. Uh, the, the right calculation is, was it necessary uh, to uh, to achieving the military aim of destroying the Nazi government uh, that uh, civilians in Berlin died? Uh, to which the obvious answer is, yes, it was. Although there's, there's an I, you know, I, I understand there's a big argument about which things they did were and were not appropriate. So there's still arguments that you can have about um, whether or not what was done that ends in civilian deaths is necessary. But the, the correct judgment of proportionality is um, 
were the number of civilians who were killed um uh, who were killed you know not sort of incidental to the uh to the military aims were they disproportionate to the military aims uh, being undertaken and the military outcome expected that is a reasonable judgment and it's a rigorous one as well it does mean i think that some of the uh, the attacks that israel mounts may be subjected to this analysis and discovered later not to have been proportionate um, you know, it's a judgment that's difficult to make while the war's going on, and I'm not anyway necessarily um, the right person to make it because I'm not a military uh, an expert. But that's the right question, rather than trying to make the question, um, you know, some people are saying, well, if a single civilian dies, uh, that's um, not acceptable. Uh, and it's horrendous. That's not the, that's, but that's not the argument. The argument is whether or not it is re reasonably necessary to the appropriate military outcome uh, and the, and um unfortunately i i am convinced that the appropriate military outcome is the destruction of the the hamas uh, infrastructure and leadership and um that will unquestionably has already unquestionably lead to tragic civilian deaths the question is whether or not um that is um uh, even a, if, even if the civilians you wrote another piece for the jc jewish chronicle um uh urging and, and this is the the title and sometimes editors choose titles urging israel to use restraint is to deny gazans their only escape from hell but what happens if the gazans are sympathetic to even the civilians the women and the children and the old people are sympathetic to hamas no no i i'm not i'm not um well you you can't i don't think you know i mean i think look i think Truthfully, one of the reasons why Hamas is able to uh, carry out its attacks is because uh, lots of Palestinians are sympathetic. But that is both a uh, a challenge to Israel, which is how do you politically um, undermine that by making sure that uh, the offering of peace, which you know Israel has, I think, retreated from, uh, is still a strong alternative to what Hamas is offering them. Uh, so that that's at least you know that that argument is a sort of double-edged sword. But what I was trying to do in that article is simply to say uh, to people, there are lots of people who've written to me as friends, and they've said, uh, you know, this is terrible what Hamas has done. We really condemn it. But Israel now shouldn't do anything. I, I yeah, you write about it. You say thank you. You've got one I'm, of those letters. Thank you for your note. Uh, how sorry you were about the Hamas murders. So you're onto yeah, that. I do. So you know, I, I I'm I I wrote that in. You know, it was kind of like a response to someone who actually wrote to me. It was a Times reader that I'm quite fond of, and I think he was trying to be nice, but I was outraged by it. Um, and um, and the reason is because trying to argue not. Of course, everybody everybody in life should show restraint and proportionality. So I'm not suggesting that for a second. What I am suggesting is to say at this point that Israel should not respond to what Hamas did is just a, a, an in, a lax comprehension about who Hamas are and what's going to happen if Israel doesn't do that. Hamas isn't going to stop. So what you're doing if you allow them to carry on uh, holding the infrastructure is you're ending up allowing them to attack uh, Jewish civilians. And this comes back to the to the point made before about whether it's weaponizing the Holocaust. You know, 
there are a couple of lessons that you can learn from what happened to my parents. Certainly one of them is a man's inhumanity to man is terrible. Uh, the things that people did uh, to each other, the, the casual crimes and violence that they commit are awful. And they visit those on little children like my parents. And that's part of increasing one's compassion about every about the suffering of every family, whoever they are. Um, but the other thing that it teaches you is it would have been quite good if uh, these uh, monsters had been resisted militarily, uh, if it had been possible to stop Stalin or Hitler from committing their crimes. Um, and they weren't going to be talked out of them. Uh, and so um, one of the... Uh, things that my book does not do is turn you into a pacifist you you write also in the times uh ceasefire supporters fail to understand israel um what about understanding hamas did the book help you understand hamas in any way uh and and which well, side of the book was it the 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 german side or the soviet side so so the first thing to to say you know I, i'm very careful in my book to to write their story without put layering on top of it the things that go in my times column my my political arguments there there are some obvious arguments in favor of uh, liberty the rule of law moderation uh, compassion for each other that that are and you know justifiable anger about of the crimes that were committed that belong in the book but it's a storybook it's a story of what happened to them uh, from which people can draw the political conclusions that they wish um so uh, you know i wouldn't want people to, to feel that they were reading a book in which they're going to get a lecture they're going to get a story and uh and a human one uh that 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 embeds what happened to my parents in the history of the the times um but is not polemic um but uh, i i think you know it is obvious from reading alfred's encounter with the Zionists, the arguments that he uses, the book he produces a, a best-selling book uh, called a, a, a Critical Journey Through Palestine, uh, in which he sets out the argument against the creation of Israel. And you read it and think, well, okay, I can see why um, uh, you know that was then destroyed by a sort of fascist conservatism, and you realise there wasn't much reasoning with the forces of um, of either the Nazis or the Soviets. And and there wasn't much room for naivety about who these people were. You know, you, you see these, my in the collection of correspondence that I got, there are these letters that my uh, great aunt and uh, uncle have written to Stalin, asking personally, you know, asking for mercy for my grandfather, my grandmother and, and my father. And you can only, you know, kind of, you realise that they're, their pleas for a humanity are dealing with a kind of monstrous machine that uh, isn't interested in their pleas for humanity. And I suppose I think the same is true, is true, unfortunately, of the forces that we're dealing with in Hamas. Uh, the, the big story today uh, on the front page of the New York Times, at least, is that dual nationals and injured Palestinians are crossing into Egypt. There is a hostage crisis, of course, which is one of the central narratives in this unfolding tragedy. Did that trigger uh, your own story of your mother as a kind of hostage? Because after all, the Nazis weren't doing anyone any favors. They were exchanging your mother for, what was it, money, I think. Uh, so yeah. what, what can we learn from the story of, of, of your mother's family um, in their, I guess, hostage situation and, yeah. and the hostage situation so, uh, today? 
I think um, the mo it's it's a complicated thing because you do end up you you see the kind of reasoning that is used by the authorities uh, in respect of their documentation. Are they really uh, eligible for the support of the United States because they're not really proper Latin Americans and so uh, therefore these passports are a fraud? Um, and it's quite interesting to read that correspondence and realise sometimes that human beings can get stuck in a sort of bureaucratic frame and, and forget either the humans involved, but also naive about the scale of the evil that they were facing. Uh, I think those things are relevant. The correspondence between exactly their hostage situation and, um, you know, because my mother's isn't quite there because in the Hamas case, they've taken these hostages uh, in order you know, deliberately to swap them. Whereas in my mother's case, she was taken anyway, and then they put they decide to put a number of them aside to be hostages. So it's slightly different. But but um the messages about humanity are the same. Final question. Um uh Dan, you've been very generous with your time. Um this is a an unusual time, of course, to be a Jew in the diaspora in, in Western Europe. Uh Jared Kushner, uh according to the Jewish Chronicle at least, said that he believes Jews are safer in Saudi Arabia than on U.S. college campuses. You're not an expert on U.S. college campuses, but there's been a lot of stories about anti-Israel and anti-Semitic actions, demonstrations in London. Are you concerned uh, about what's happening in a, in a broader historical context? You're obviously concerned in a sense, but yes. how would you historicize okay. what's happening today? Okay, so again, go go back to um, the the pamphlet, nineteen nineteen, towards pogroms, the ones that I referred to earlier as being a warning to to Germans uh, not to speak of bestial murder to their to their descendants. Um, that there are elements in that uh, in my grandfather's warnings about the rise of conspiracy theories about uh, the demonization of Jews uh, that uh, you read and you think, yes, that is a parallel. Uh, that's a warning to me. That's an understanding that even the smallest amount of this needs not to be tolerated because look where it leads. Uh, that's one reaction, leads to alertness. Uh, the other, which I fear Jared Kushner may possibly have, uh, I haven't seen his remarks, but he may possibly have transgressed against, is it also induces a sense of proportion. This was very important to my mother, by the way, uh, sense of proportion. Um, she, uh, and that is uh, a sense of proportion leads you to read that pamphlet and think things were much worse in 1919 in Germany uh, already, already in 1919 um, than they are uh, in Britain, for example, now. Uh, so, uh, yes, be concerned, be alert. Uh, you know, I now spend much more of my time than I ever anticipated that I would spend explaining myself and defending myself as a Jew. Uh, it's extraordinary the proportion of my political uh, life that that has now taken up. Um, you know, normally I've been I've I've worked with with many different prime ministers uh, on prime ministers' questions and on speech writing uh, with everyone you can imagine, really, and it hasn't really much uh, been central. Uh, much more recently, unfortunately, has become increasingly central. And that is worrying um, that, that, that that has to be the case. But at the same time, let's maintain a sense of perspective about the countries we live in uh, and a sense of proportion 
because those things are important uh, and important too. Balancing alertness and a sense of proportion, that is our, our great uh, uh, political test. And if my book uh, can help people do that, give people a richer understanding of the past, not just of the Nazis, but maybe of the communist story that people don't know, uh, then I think I'll have made a contribution to the current as well as of uh, the historical record.